So far on this show, we've had a wide variety of people acting as detectives. The local mayor, a housemaid, many scientists and chemists, as is natural. Usually, these people are investigating, whether in an official capacity or not, because they're suspicious of someone. But you get a lot more motivated to find the truth when all the suspicious gazes are turned your way. And it's truly incredible to see the lengths, or in this case, the depths, someone will go to when forced to prove their innocence. Welcome to Detectives by the Decade. This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter. Now, before we dive in, real quick, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. It helps. And now, Season 2, Episode 2, Skull Duggery. Dr. George Parkman and Dr. John Webster were both professors at Harvard Medical School in Massachusetts, one former and one current. Parkman had taught anatomy while Webster still taught chemical and mineralogy, a specialization within the broader field of geology. Parkman was nearing 60 in 1849 and had moved on from academia and practicing medicine to a life in the business world, including in real estate. Not that he needed to worry about money, coming as he did from one of Boston's wealthiest families. He was, in fact, what was known as a Boston Brahmin, the upper-classiest of the Boston upper class, usually descendants of the original colonists. Harvard was a veritable hive for Brahmins. Parkman had been the third of five born to investor Samuel Parkman's second marriage after the six children from his first marriage. And Papa Parkman didn't just invest. He literally founded towns and shared ownership of them. Shockingly, these are the towns of Parkman, Ohio and Parkman, Maine. George Parkman growing up in a family full of successful people, decided he wanted to become a doctor quite young as a result of health issues that plagued him through childhood. However, he veered in a slightly different direction when the issue of mental illness perked his interest. He had a fairly sympathetic view of those experiencing mental illness and after some exposure to European methods and schools of thought, he developed a proposal for a new method of mental health treatment, one that was more residential in nature. Patients wouldn't just stay in their rooms when not in treatment. They could benefit from socialization, 
engaging in hobbies, and helping out the residents by doing basic chores. You know, almost like people with mental illness were real human beings who could benefit from doing real human being things, not lizard demons wearing skin suits. In 1816, George Parkman married Eliza Agnes McDonough, and the couple had two children together. He tried to get a facility based on the residential model set up in Boston fairly early in his career. In almost a comedy of misunderstandings, when he suggested using the residential model for an asylum being planned by a Massachusetts general, and also suggested that he himself might be just the person to supervise it, the trustees took him up on it but mainly because they took his offer to fundraise 16000 as an offer to just give them 16000 as an endowment. That's over $323,000 in today's money, so no small ask. Parkman seems to have come through eventually, though, because the asylum was built. But after the completion of what would be called the McLean Asylum for the Insane, there was the question of whether they could give him a supervisory role now that he'd funded the place. It's all very much an oh-come-on kind of moment. He did end up retiring eventually, but kept one foot in the medical world by visiting with mentally ill patients and allowing the use of his mansion during epidemics. I want a mansion to stay at during epidemics, please. Out of all of his 11 children, George Parkman's father chose him as administrator of the family money after Papa Parkman's passing, which occurred in 1824. Parkman kept investing in real estate and also gave endowments to causes near and dear to him. This included the endowment for the asylum, funding for an anatomy professorship, and the land on Grove Street on which Harvard Medical School was built and would remain for nearly 40 years. It also included the land for the Charles Street Jail. Along with managing the family money in his retirement, Parkman continued his real estate speculation and also supplemented his wealth through money lending. Now, Parkman was really a known figure in Boston, and not just for his wealth or status or involvement with mental health services. Fanny Longfellow, wife of poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, called him the good-natured Don Quixote. The Wilmington Journal described him as an elderly gentleman of vast wealth and eccentric character. And in Our First Men, a calendar of wealth, fashion, and gentility, published in 1846, we get a closer look at the man. Bred a physician, but practices as a speculator in real estate. 
He owns a vast many cheap-built tenements, let at high rents. And as he is his own rent collector and keeps no horse, he may be seen at almost any hour moving rapidly through the city. To judge from the expression on his face, so deceptive is physiognomy, he might be mistaken for a man without a sixpence. Yet many a poor family has partaken of his unostentatious beneficence, which, perhaps, he will not thank us for proclaiming. He has lately given a site for a new medical college. It was at that medical school where he taught for a while, although he was retired as of 1849. And while he was retired in 1849, he still had many friends and acquaintances still at the school, and he had some business there himself. Now let's talk about John White Webster. He was born in 1793 to a Boston family that, while it didn't quite rival the Parkmans, certainly held its own. And while none of his immediate family were included in Our First Men, a calendar of wealth, fashion, and gentility, which, by the way, also included women. His family shared some connections to some individuals who appeared in that indispensable tome. Webster also graduated from Harvard in 1811, two years after Parkman, so it's likely their times there overlapped. And he went on to attend and graduate from Harvard Medical School four years later. He did some traveling and worked abroad for a bit, during which time he met his eventual wife, Harriet Frederica Hickling. She would also go on to be the mother of their six daughters and one son. Back in America, he tried to set up a private practice, but it was a failure. So back to his old stomping grounds he went, to Harvard where he took a professorship of chemistry. It was through this employment situation that Webster had a lecture room all to himself, as well as a lab that connected to the lecture room. That meant that not only did he not have to hang around awkwardly in a hallway with his students waiting for a professor running late to clear the room... He also never had to clean up a chalkboard that the previous professor couldn't be bothered about. Sorry, I'm salty. The lab attached to his classroom, both of which were situated on an upper floor, wasn't even his only lab. He also had a lab in the basement, where he also had a privy. That's a bathroom, in case you're not up on your medieval slang that they were apparently still using in the 1850s. And he had the only set of keys to the privy. And at Harvard, it seemed like Webster had found his place. He got a promotion. 
He was well-liked for both his lecture style and content. And while his performance at work would eventually be denigrated, we have the word of those who actually attended his lectures, right down to fellow physician Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He called Dr. Webster pleasant in the lecture room, rather nervous and excitable. Webster also had a few quirks to his personality. He loved him a good fireworks display, so much so that students took to calling him Skyrocket Jack. And he was known to display, on occasion, a bit of a dark sense of humor. None other than famous poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, whose wife we heard from earlier, told a story about a dinner party during which Webster used his scientific knowledge for entertainment purposes, lighting up a bowl of chemicals and leaning over it, pulling a noose over his head and popping his tongue out of his mouth, his impersonation of a man being hanged. But no matter how funny you are at parties or how good you are at professoring, it's not the most fiscally rewarding profession. And what money Webster did make, he wasn't great at budgeting. He ended up having to sell his family home in 1849 and choose a smaller place to rent. So, Webster had issues with money, and Parkman had, and frequently lent, money. A match made in heaven, you say? Eh, well. In 1847, Parkman loaned Webster $2,400. That's 77000 in modern money. That loan was for a term of four years. And in 1849, Parkman loaned Webster another 400. That's 14,000 today. That wrapped the two loans together, so he owed nearly $100,000 in today's money. He put up a cabinet of rare minerals for collateral, and at first Parkman was like, Okay, sure. Don't pay me back and I'll get some pretty rocks. All right. But Webster was getting desperate. He borrowed another $1,200 from another acquaintance. And he also used the mineral cabinet as collateral. In November 1849, Parkman found out about Webster's double dealing with the mineral cabinet collateral, and he was not having it. When he couldn't find Webster to give him hell, he decided the next best thing was a visit to the Harvard cashier. After all, Webster had just given a lecture to which he'd sold tickets so the cashier would have that money. 
When Parkman requested it, though, the cashier refused, as he could only give that money to Webster. And as an aside, no lie, going to lectures was a legitimate pastime back then, both in America and Europe and likely other places too. People actually enjoyed learning. Madness! Webster heard about Parkman's visit to the cashier and attempt to swipe up his lecture earnings, and he met up with Parkman at the university on November 19th. A janitor at the school, Ephraim Littlefield, who lived right next to Webster's basement lab, witnessed the meeting. The meeting ended in an argument, but the two decided to try again the next day. Webster, with his usual reliable unreliableness, was like, eh, I got a whole lot going on, so how about we do this on Friday the 23rd? So on Friday, November 23rd, Parkman went out to run his usual errands, collecting rent and loan payments. He was seen out and about, wearing dark trousers and a frock coat accented with a purple satin vest and topped off with a stovepipe hat. I kind of love this outfit. He was seen in his stylish get-up around 1.45 p.m., going into the medical school 15 fashionable minutes late for his 1.30 meeting with Webster. Later, Littlefield tried to get into the room to clean it, but the door was locked from the inside. And remember, only Webster had a key. Littlefield did hear water running in the room. This all struck him as rather odd. As for Webster himself, everything seemed pretty normal. He got home around 6 p.m., then went to a party. Just a normal Friday night for Dr. Webster. a slightly less normal Saturday for Littlefield. He ran into Webster on campus, and Webster carried a bundle of some kind and requested that Littlefield make up a fire for him. Littlefield also fielded an interesting question from Webster about the facilities. Webster wanted access to the vault under his privy in the basement where the cesspit was. This certainly raises a few questions for us, but in truth, it wasn't the first time Littlefield had fielded this request. Another professor had previously lost something in the cesspit, but Littlefield had been unable to even get a light in the vault. And while we might be thinking... 
All right, there's just an epidemic of professors accidentally dropping things in the toilet. No. At least in the previous professor's case, this was kind of on purpose. Dr. Ainsworth, an anatomy professor, hung a skull down in the privy vault to soften it. But the air there got so rancid that it actually rotted the rope from which the skull dangled. So, that's what they were doing at Harvard Medical School in the 1840s. Hanging skulls down the toilet. Eh. Look, the thing is, knowing what we know about the state of medicine at that point, that actually sounds... Yeah, it sounds about right. Remember, they didn't even wash their hands yet before performing operations and wouldn't for another 20-odd years. So yeah, hanging a skull in the toilet sounds pretty on-brand. And it was an even less normal Saturday for the Parkman family. They started asking around and even went to the police because Dr. Parkman had never come home the night before. They got some information from Webster about Parkman's last known whereabouts, that he'd come to collect his debt on Friday and Webster had paid him. The last Webster had seen him, he reported, Parkman was heading to the city clerk where he would get the clear debt recorded. No one had seen him after that. So, of course, the police are interested in the university, as that was where Parkman was last seen. They do some looking around on Monday and Tuesday, during which Webster seems pretty anxious about keeping them from examining the privy. The police found nothing on this search, nor did they find anything from dredging the river. The Parkman family had the resources to really look for Dr. Parkman, and so they distributed 28,000 missing posters, which offered a $3,000 reward. That is $100,000 in today's money. Later, another 1000 was added to that if Parkman's body was found. It seems you can guess their mindset from that late addition to the reward. This drew quite a bit of attention, and both the local media and the local rumor mills got to work. So did the police. And many in those three groups had one name on their lips. Ephraim Littlefield, the janitor. And Littlefield knew he was under suspicion. He also knew that something with Webster wasn't quite right. In the week prior to Thanksgiving, he'd asked Webster if he needed any fires lit that week. Webster was like, nah, I'm good. And yet, on the day before Thanksgiving, Webster had a roaring fire going 
in the basement lab, where he had locked the door behind him. And this fire was hot. Littlefield could feel it through the wall. That is how hot the fire burned. It was a little weird that Webster would deny needing a fire and then make one for himself. And it was more than strange that Webster made eight trips to get more fuel from the closets. It was also a little nerve-wracking being under suspicion of murder and seeing this guy, the last person to see the suspected victim alive, acting ten kinds of weird. And Littlefield, apparently, wasn't the type of guy to just sit back and see what happened. So, using his wife Caroline as a lookout, Littlefield busts into Webster's rooms on Thanksgiving Day. And what do you know? The kindling barrels are plumb empty. The very kindling barrels Littlefield had filled recently. And he knows exactly where he wants to look in the privy that Webster had asked about, the same privy he seemed to be trying to divert police from looking at. Littlefield has quite a few days of labor ahead of him. He gets under the building via a trap door and sets to work, working through the layers of brick around the privy vault. He's got a chisel, a crowbar, a hatchet, and a drill. His hands are sore. His back is aching. And he's frustrated as all hell when he has to stop on the first day without breaking through. But he comes back the next day and goes back to it. It's not until late afternoon on the second day of chiseling that he makes it through. So the next challenge is the fact that the drafts within the wall keep blowing out his lantern. He manages to squeeze into the wall, though, and after some time, his eyes adjust to the darkness. I'm not sure whether his nose would have adjusted to the smell. Remember, this is the privy vault, the cesspit. But it's not only human waste he finds there. He also finds human remains. A pelvis, a thigh, and the bottom part of a leg. With this find, he immediately calls the police. They cart away the bones and then head over to arrest Webster at his home. After which, they cart him away. To the Charles Street Jail.
Upon his arrest, Webster is like, "No, of course I didn't do this. How could you say such a What's that?" Littlefield found some some bones. And then a direct quote, "That villain. I am a ruined man." Then he pulls some drama, insisting that Littlefield was the true murderer before he pivots to attempting suicide. I think he was pretty set in his strategy, which was throwing spaghetti at the wall. Not to see what sticks, mind you. It doesn't seem like he stopped to see what stuck before he tossed another handful, splat, at the wall. Meanwhile, the police have some bones. But the coroner might need more to make some determinations about the victim and the circumstances. So they go on a scavenger hunt. Like actual scavenger, I guess. The furnace is where they hit the jackpot. The really gruesome jackpot. They found some personal items, like coins and a button. Why would those be in the furnace? One has to wonder. And then they find some fragments, jaw, teeth, parts of a set of dentures. All right, it's getting more suspicious over there. But it's when they opened up a chest in the furnace room that they found, well, a chest, as in a torso. The legs and arms had been dismembered, and the head was missing. There's at least a thigh there, though other vital parts, including several organs, are also missing. The initial post-mortem states that the victim was male, 50 to 60 years old, and physically, he lines up pretty well with Parkman. So they have an idea of whose corpse this might be, but unfortunately, ideas aren't confirmation, so they need someone to give them that. That job is left to poor Eliza Parkman. Of course, There's not much left to identify, but apparently she's able to find birthmarks on his lower back and on his penis. Dr. Parkman's dentist, Dr. Nathan Keep, also identified the dentures found in the furnace as those he'd made for Parkman. Now, he had every reason to be very familiar with these dentures. He'd made them only three years before, and Parkman visited him frequently for any necessary adjustments. The most recent visit? Only two weeks before Parkman vanished. He could even compare the dentures to the plaster cast he'd made of Parkman's teeth and jaw in order to craft the dentures. They can't quite determine the cause of death. They find a puncture wound between the ribs, but then they're like, well, maybe he was stabbed there, or 
Maybe we did that by accident when moving the corpse? Good work, guys. Good, good job. Keep it up. The remains are examined by both doctors and anatomists. Everyone pretty much agrees that this was an expert job. But remember, this is Harvard Medical School. This is the place where you hang a skull in a toilet for funsies. Littlefield himself, some sources report, provided fresh cadavers to the school for 25 bucks a pop. So they'd have to fight the notion that the remains were just more specimens. The remains weren't listed in the school's records, so there was that. And then it was Webster's colleague Ainsworth, that's right, Dr. Skulldangler himself, who said, hey, look, there's no arsenic in the remains, and we would inject arsenic into any specimens we were working with as a preservative. There was also the argument that the remains could be from multiple individuals. That notion was put to bed pretty quickly, both from some simple process of elimination and then the final report from the coroner's jury. The process of elimination was that the bones found in the furnace and cesspool matched the body parts that were missing from the body found in the chest. Worst jigsaw puzzle ever. Then, on December 13, 1849, the final report from the coroner's jury obliterated that argument. All the remains have been demonstrated to be parts of one and the same person. And those parts of the human frame have been identified and proved to be the remains and parts of the body and limbs of Dr. George Parkman. The report went on to implicate Webster in the murder. And that was enough for an indictment to be passed down on January 26, 1850. The trial would begin seven weeks later. During that time, Webster wrote out his defense. And he wrote a lot of it. It totaled 194 pages. It contained some of the same arguments being made by his fellow members of the upper class who didn't want to believe that Webster, or any member of their class, could do such a horrible thing. Longfellow's wife wrote about the common sentiment. You will see by the papers what dark horror overshadows us like an eclipse. Of course we cannot believe Dr. Webster guilty, bad as the evidence looks. Many suspect the janitor, who is known to be a bad man and to have wished for the reward offered for Dr. Parkman's body. He could make things appear against the doctor, having bodies under his control. What followed in the trial was a series of medical, dental, and osteological exhibits so extensive 
that this case is considered a landmark in the history of forensic anthropology. It wouldn't only be the court and those directly involved in the case who got to witness history being made either. The case was a sensation in both the national and international press, involving, as it did, two men from the upper class and academia. Publications in Paris, Berlin, and London sent their own reporters to cover the events. And people gathered in the thousands, some camping out overnight by the courthouse, in order to gain entry. All told, 60,000 people snagged a seat at some point or another and got to see history being made in the justice system as they took tickets for a quick few minutes of spectatorship before filing back out. Dr. Webster was still making his argument that the bones found in the furnace were from some nameless cadaver brought to the university for dissection. And one of Harvard Medical School's own anatomy profs, Dr. Frederick Ainsworth, he of the toilet skull, was brought in to testify to that. He brought up the lack of arsenic preservative as proof that Webster's argument held no merit. Although his specific testimony seemed worded in such a way as to throw suspicion back on Littlefield. He stated, All subjects in my department are injected with fluid to preserve them from decomposition. In these remains which were produced by Littlefield, I saw no appearance of the use of such fluid. My impression was that the person who cut them up had no anatomical knowledge. That's, um, a little sneaky. There's just no reason to bring up Littlefield unless you're trying to put ideas in people's heads by reminding them that Littlefield found the bones. Also, I just do not trust anybody who puts a skull in a toilet. Next up was Parkman's dentist, Dr. Keep, who told the court, The teeth were brought to me, and I at once recognized them as the teeth which I had made for Dr. Parkman and with which I had taken so much pains. There could be no mistake about them. He also wrote a report detailing his confirmation, showing how different aspects of the dentures found in the furnace matched the model. And he demonstrated how well the teeth found in the furnace fit into the mold. This was the very first time in American jurisprudence that a court was presented with dental evidence used to identify a murder victim. But wait, I hear you saying. What about the Salem witch trials discussed in an episode of season one? Well, I'm glad you asked, because while dental evidence was used in that trial, there was no murder. There wasn't even any witchcraft. Back to Dr. Keep, for all the scientific knowledge he brought to the proceedings, he also brought some pathos. He couldn't get through his testimony without crying, and it was so affecting that some members of the jury and the audience 
joined him. I gotta tell you, if I'm on trial for murder, or anything really, and the jury is crying along with one of the prosecution's witnesses, I have to figure that the jig is, in fact, quite up. Then the prosecution brought in a famous name, and one we've already mentioned in this episode, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who earlier gave us his opinion of Webster's demeanor and lecturing style. Holmes, who would in just a few short years become dean of the medical school, testified that the body parts found in the chest were, quote, not dissimilar, end quote, with the anatomy of Parkman himself. The prosecution then called Ephraim Littlefield. He testified as to Parkman's request for payment, as well as Webster's strange behavior in asking for a light for the privy vault, locking all of his doors all of a sudden, and having an incredibly hot fire after insisting that he needed none. Webster also had, it turned out, given the janitor a turkey just prior to the Thanksgiving holiday, something he had never done before. And, of course, here I burrowed into a rabbit hole, wherein I found that, in 1848, the nearest year I could find a record of, a turkey cost about 12 cents a pound. Factoring in that turkeys have grown enormously, they're two times larger now than they were in the 1960s, the best information I consume is that a turkey might be around 15 pounds on average-ish. So a buck 80 for the turkey, which in 2020 inflation comes to $58. That's a whole lot to spend on turkey for the janitor if you have serious debts. Then again, Maybe he had no reason to be concerned about those debts anymore. Detectives by the decade. Come for the forensics history, stay for the 1800s turkey price analysis. I've got a new tagline, ladies and gentlemen. Back to the testimony, which was about to get extra gruesome. The officer who had found the torso was brought to the stand, as was the torso. It was put on display like some kind of macabre art installation for the duration of this testimony. And they, uh, didn't bother cleaning any of the blood off of it before they brought it in, either. You're welcome, jury. The officer told the jury that the torso wouldn't have fit into the privy hole, which likely explained why it was stashed in a trunk. We then had some amateur, very rudimentary handwriting comparison when an acquaintance of Webster's, who knew what Webster's handwriting looked like, said that it matched that found in three letters that had been sent to the police about the murder, all of which looked like an attempt to get the police to look at anything but Webster. And then the prosecution rested. Rested. 
And finally, the defense got its chance. They started out with a lot of character witnesses, and then some witnesses who had supposedly seen Parkman after his murder. The judge was not having this. He told the jury to ignore those witnesses, as they could just be laboring under mistaken identity. An interesting note on this, the specific person whom the prosecution thought witnesses might mistake for Parkman was a man named George Bliss of Springfield, who may have been in Boston that day. They didn't offer any testimony or evidence to prove that argument, but it seems that around 2007 or 2008, Research team James and Lois Cowan found a portrait of George Bliss, and they were going to have a forensic anthropologist compare it to a portrait of Dr. George Parkman in an attempt to determine whether this mistaken identity would have been likely. This was all to have been for a book entitled The Gentleman in the Purple Waistcoat, which I love and I really, really want to read, but I can barely find it anywhere. It doesn't appear that it's self-published or anything. Listed as HarperCollins on Google Books. I just couldn't find it. So if anyone knows anything about this, please let me know because I really, really want to read this book and then maybe I could report back on what it has to say. So after those witnesses came testimony from some of the defense's experts, some of whom would be quite familiar to the jury, having already appeared as witnesses for the prosecution. And no, I don't know how that works either. Their purpose was to cast doubt on the possibility of any positive identification of the body or determination of cause of death. A dentist named William T.G. Morton was called to testify, and he brought something for show-and-tell. Teeth, of course. What else does a dentist bring to show-and-tell? Come on. Which he slipped into the mold Dr. Keep had produced with no difficulty. After the prosecution had its rebuttal, the defense and prosecution presented their closing arguments. Then. In a sharp contrast to how today's proceedings go, Webster himself took the stand after closing arguments. Massachusetts law at the time forbade defendants in murder trials from taking the stand until the very end, at which time they could make an unsworn speech. The reasoning for this was that, of course, their own bias would flavor any testimony they could give. There was no direct or cross-examination of the defendant. Webster gave his speech against the advice of his attorneys and spent 15 minutes trash-talking those attorneys and showing the jury his evidence. He finished with a flourish demanding that whoever had written those letters to the police come forward immediately. 
the only response was silence. Then it was left to the head judge to give final instructions to the jury. He told them, okay, here's your job. If you can determine beyond a reasonable doubt that the remains found in the cesspit, the furnace, and the trunk were Parkman's, then you have a guilty verdict. And after a whopping for the day, two hours and 45 minutes of deliberation, the jury came back and pronounced Webster guilty by unanimous verdict. Here is a report on how Webster took it. When the foreman pronounced the word guilty, the prisoner started like a person shot. His hand dropped upon the rail in front, his chin drooped upon his breast, and after remaining thus a moment or two, he sank into the chair, covering his eyes with his hands. A death-like silence followed, and all eyes were fixed in silence on him, whose hopes had now fled. For nearly five minutes, the prisoner remained in this state, apparently unconscious. The prisoner seemed affected to tears. No one seemed willing to move, to break the spell which kept all fixed in silence. The prisoner remained some time after the court adjourned, with his handkerchief to his eyes. On Monday, April 1st, 1850, the judge sentenced Webster to death by hanging. Despite appeals and a request for a pardon, and of course a lot of noise from the Boston Brahmins, who still thought that a murder was beneath men of such high class and intelligence, the death warrant was signed. And finally, a few months after receiving his sentence, Webster confessed that he had written the anonymous letters. Oh, and the murder. Yeah, he also, he also confessed to the murder. In detail. His confession went that Parkman had confronted him about the debt and the mineral cabinet. And things got heated. I was excited to the highest degree of passion, and while he was speaking and gesticulating in the most violent and menacing manner, I seized whatever thing was handiest. It was a stick of wood, and dealt him an instantaneous blow with all the force that passion could give it. It was on the side of his head, and there was nothing to break the force of the blow. He fell instantly upon the pavement. There was no second blow. He did not move. I stooped down over him, and he seemed to be lifeless. Blood flowed from his mouth, and I got a sponge and wiped it away. I got some ammonia and applied it to his nose, but without effect. The first thing I did, as soon as I could do anything, was to drag the body into the private room adjoining. There I took off his clothes and began putting them into the fire which was burning in the upper laboratory. 
they were all consumed there that afternoon with papers, pocketbook, or whatever else they may have contained. My next move was to get the body into the sink which stands in the small private room. By setting the body partially erect against the corner and getting up into that sink myself, I succeeded in drawing it up. There it was entirely dismembered. It was quickly done as a work of terrible and desperate necessity. The only instrument used was the knife found by the officers in the tea chest, and which I kept for cutting corks. He was hanged on August 30th, 1850. Afterwards, a fund was started to aid his family. Mrs. Parkman was the very first to toss some money in the cap. And even though he stated during his testimony that he would not accept the reward Parkman's family had initially offered for finding the doctor, Littlefield, in the end, was still given the $3,000 reward for his assistance with the investigation. That's, again, nearly $100,000 today. Littlefield retired. All told, the Parkman-Webster case started grabbing the public's imagination with its sensational tale of a man of high class murdering over money. But its true footprint on history became the use of dental and scientific evidence presented by expert witnesses in trial. Dr. Parkman was a man of science, and while I'm sure he wasn't super thrilled with being murdered, one has to think that he would have respected that the trial for his murder was so very, very scientific. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned after the credits and sources, as I have a little something extra about this story, a side note, that you may find interesting. If you enjoy listening to this show, you will definitely enjoy listening to Old Timey Crimey, my historical true crime podcast with my hosts, Amber and Scott. You also might enjoy listening to me talk short stories with my friend Chris Garcia, over on Short Stories, Short Podcast. Links for both of those are in the show notes, as are links to the show's Instagram and Facebook, which are under the username Detectives by the Decade, and Twitter, which is just By the Decade. This week's probably not creepy at all shout out goes to listeners in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, Harrisburg! What's up? Detectives by the Decade is written, researched, and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Voice acting this week provided by Mr. and Mrs. Question Mark. Music by Kevin McLeod and Music L Files. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in two weeks. My sources for this episode are Jim Fisher. 
on jimfisher.edinburgh.edu, Elizabeth Watts Pope, The American Antiquarian, Wikipedia, The Wilmington Journal, and The Vermont Watchman and State Journal, accessed via Chronicling America on the Library of Congress, Dolly Stoltz on Strange Remains, Our First Men, A Calendar of Wealth, Fashion, and Gentility by Richard Hildrat, and Silent Witnesses, The Often Gruesome but Always Fascinating History of Forensic Science by Nigel McCreary. A few listeners may have caught on to this, but for those who didn't, I have a final, highly ironic, and somewhat weird note. John Webster killed George Parkman in the very building for which Parkman had provided the land. And when Webster was taken to jail for Parkman's murder, It was to the Charles Street Jail, the very jail for which Parkman had provided the land. It seems that Webster, no matter what he did, couldn't escape the shadow cast by Parkman and his money.